North American Mission Board, we get to support them annually. We have a thing we call the Greater Things uh, campaign. That is our Get Out of Debt campaign. And 10% of what we give to get us out of debt goes to missions. So if you can think about when I came, we were a little over, or right at $4 million in debt. We're just a little over one in the last, oh, seven years, seven and a half years. And 10% of total Greater Things money that we give to get out of debt goes toward missions, the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board. So I don't know if you do math very quickly, but it's been our privilege to do a lot of wonderful things to take the gospel of Jesus Christ. But during the week of prayer, if you would still like to give to that, you're welcome to do that. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, we are called to the cross. That's what we're doing. So I want to start out this morning by basically talking about a little fellow. Uh, his name is Johnny. And Johnny is... Uh, um, Probably much like uh, one of your little boys, Mark. Um, kind of like Curious George, you know. And uh, always, because of that curiosity, kind of finds his way into places that uh, he shouldn't be in and doing things he shouldn't be doing. You know anything about that, Pastor Mark? You know about that. He has four boys, by the way. And uh, they're all under eight, ten. And uh, so uh, he's got a busy household. And so little Johnny, you know, is, uh, is, is this sort of curious little George little fella. And it's time for him to go for his annual checkup. And so mom is trying, spent several days getting him ready to go to the checkup. And, you know, because that's not one of his favorite things to do, to be examined by a doctor. And so on the day finally in which they were supposed to go, he was putting up someone to protest when she tried to get him to lay all of his toys down. Well, there was one particular toy that he would not lay down, and that is Thomas the Train. You know Thomas the Train? Yes. Owen in, in, uh, in Vancouver got about 10 of those for his birthday just a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, don't, I don't really get it, but uh, there's a fascination for these trains, and he would not let go of Thomas the Train. And so uh, his mom decided, you know, for a comfort thing, that's probably not a bad idea. So off they went to the doctor. And during the examination, because he's curious, everything the doctor did, he always asked for questions. You know, what is that? And what's that for? And so the doctor took out the little, you know, deal to tap on his, on his knee. And he said, what's that? And he said, well, it's to test your reflexes. He let him hold it, you know, and, and then he tapped it. And he was okay with that. And then he went to look into his ear, you know, with a little light scope. And he said, what is that? So he let him hold that and saw the light. And he looked into his ear and said it was to see the darkness. And finally came time for the stethoscope. And, and so the doctor, you know, went to put it on his chest. He said, what is that? Sort of protest a little bit. He said, well, he said, this lets me listen to s for what's inside. And so the doctor decided, you know, why don't you try it? So he took him off his ears and put him on little Johnny's ear, and he took the stethoscope, and he put it on Thomas the Train, and it was one of those noisy Thomas the Trains. If you're a grandparent or parent, you know what I'm talking about? Thank the Lord when the batteries die. Tell your child there's no way to make him come back alive again. But anyway, so he punched, you know, the little thing, and it made the, the sound of the choo-choo train, and he sort of stepped back and went, wow. And so the doctor took him off, put him in his ears, and he went to put it on his chest. He said, now it's my turn to listen for Thomas the train in your heart. He said, well, no, doctor, you can't do that. He said, why can I do that, Johnny? He said, because everybody knows that Jesus is in your heart and Thomas is on your underwear. <laughs> yeah. We have boiled down Christianity 
to simply mean inviting Jesus into your heart. And I'm convinced that becoming a Christ follower is much more than simply inviting Jesus into your heart. And I'm convinced that's probably what's majorly wrong with most of our modern churches today. Because we have somehow convinced people that all they have to do is invite Jesus in their heart, and that is all you have to do, and therefore now you are a Christian. And there are countless people today sitting in churches across this nation who believe that simply because they invited Jesus in their heart that they are Christians. And they call themselves Christians, but have absolutely no desire to live for him. Much less suffer for him. And I'm convinced that what Jesus helps us understand in in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, and many, many others of his teachings is that the life of following after Jesus is much more than a simple prayer of inviting him into our hearts. It is a call to a cross. It It is a march death that leads to a crucifixion where one dies to himself and follows Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. And Jesus very clearly says that to his disciples in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And I want us to take a look at this passage this morning, and I want us to quickly understand there are five things that I want to look at, and we're going to sort of spell the word cross, a little acrostic, C-R-O-S-S. We have five points, and we're going to spell an acrostic with the word cross, and each letter symbolizes something in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, where Jesus lays out for his would-be disciples, those who have a desire to follow him, this is what it's going to cost. You will, in following me, making a decision to follow me, you must in, in advance understand that it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to live a life of health, wealth, and prosperity your whole life. You're going to follow me. I am headed to a cross. So in following me, I want you to understand this up front, that you are going to be called to die to self. And I think this is where many get in trouble today. So let's take a look at the passage in Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. The letter C in the word cross means, as we answer the call of Christ to carry our cross, we must first consider Christ. We must first consider Christ. Notice the passage in verse 31, and he began to teach them. Jesus is the one now who begins to teach them in Mark chapter 8. He's alluded to the, to the, the price and the cost and, and alluded to his death, but now all of a sudden he begins to intensify this message as he is instructing his disciples. There's an intensity, but also there's an intentionality. And it helps us understand that Jesus now is going to begin in this point in Mark chapter 8 verse 31 to now begin to carry them in their understanding as to the progress or the process by which he, Jesus, is not going to be sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, but he's going to be headed to a cross on Golgotha. And so he begins to teach them. Notice that the Son of Man, he calls himself the Son of Man. Those of us who are not you know, real biblical scholars, and, and, and I don't really profess to be one, I see that and I get somewhat confused. Why did Jesus like to call himself over and over again in the New Testament the Son of Man? Because that was his favorite Name for himself because it alluded or it directed those to whom he spoke to, his audience. I am the Messiah. 
spoken to and spoken about in Psalms and Daniel and Ezekiel. I am the promised Messiah. I am the one you're waiting for. You see, they were waiting for a Messiah to come. And Jesus, by calling himself, as he speaks to them, he is saying to them, I am the promised Messiah. I am the one that you're waiting for. They understood when he called himself the son of man, he was calling himself the promised Messiah. And so he says, I am the Messiah, the Son of Man. And as the Messiah, you think I'm headed to a throne, but actually, notice, I must suffer many things and be rejected. I must suffer. That word must is a word that that Jesus uses very intentionally by saying it must happen. There's an intentionality here. There is a necessity by which Jesus did not come to, to reign on the throne, but he came to die on a cross. It's necessary for him to do that. And we want him to do that because without that, we have no chance of salvation. The Son of Man must suffer. The word suffering here simply means agony or pain. Not just physical, but I think emotional and mental. And Jesus suffered many things. And that many could include just the beginning of his birth where he, you know, was seated at the right hand of the Father and came down and became born of a virgin. Imagine that. Being born like we are born and living a life like we live. That part of suffering. But I, I think also it includes the suffering that was pre-cross and during the cross. All of that which led up to his crucifixion, all of the torture and the mockery and the name-calling and the whipping and, and all of that that happened before and during the cross, he had to suffer many things. But notice, and to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. To be rejected by what we know today as the Sanhedrin. That's what Jesus is saying. These are the ones who are the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. It would be similar to what we would call today our Supreme Court. And these people who are the Supreme Court of Israel, made up of all of these religious elite, they are lawyers and they are politicians and and they've set up this legal, this system of, of government that is through the church and they are going to examine the teachings of Jesus. They're going to give him an ear. He's going to plead his case and they are going to convict him of of, of not being who he claims to be. They are not going to approve of his, testifi- of his testimony, and they are going to kill him. And that word kill simply means to breathe one's last breath and to die physically. They are going to kill him. How do they kill him? They killed him on a cross. But Jesus says, but after three days, I will rise again. The word rise means that I will rise up. I will become vertical. For when we are dead, we are not vertical, we are horizontal. And Jesus said, I'll be horizontal for a while, but I will become vertical again. I will rise up. I will stand up once again. I will live again. I think that Jesus is helping sort of lay a foundation and sort of present his case in this introductory verse as he's beginning to speak to his disciples about a cross by saying, hey, I, here's the point, I am not asking you to do anything that I myself wasn't willing and I'm not willing to do. In other words, I'm asking you to do what I'm willing to do. And when I ask you to follow me to my death march, I'm not asking you to do something that I'm unwilling to do. I'm willing to do it. And if you're going to follow me, you too, like me, must follow in my footprints, in my footsteps. And you too, like me, must die. 
in order to be saved. Consider me and the cost and the sacrifice that I bore. And I think sometimes we have the tendency to think that our cross really is a significant cross. But the reality is what Jesus asks us to do is absolutely nothing, nothing. It is nothing compared to what he did on the cross. Your cross is nothing like his cross. We have a tendency to think that our cross is is heavy and we're bearing this incredible weight. But Jesus reminds us that the cross that he bore is nothing like ours and what he asks us to bear. You know, sometimes, you know, in the halls of the church, you have a tendency to be careful. At least I do to ask people, you know, how you feeling today? You know what I'm saying? Come on, you know what I'm saying. Why is that? It's going to take some time. But when there's a group of people and you ask somebody, how you feeling? The first liar never wins. Because someone else in the group is going to have a worse story than yours. Right? So you want to be last when there's a testimony going on about how you're feeling. You don't know how much information you're going to convey. And, and so, you know, there's that, that whole, and so we have this tendency, I think. To pity ourselves and to somehow think that our cross and what we're asking to bear and the load that we are bearing is really heavy. But considering what Christ bore for us, we are asked to bear absolutely nothing. Even if we were to die for him, physically die, it would be nothing in compared to the death of the divine son of God dying on a cross for sins that he didn't commit. So when he asks us to carry our cross, to consider the cost, to answer the call, and to bear the burden of the cross in which we and following him are to bear, we are to consider, hey, Jesus, this may be hard to bear, but compared to what you did, I understand it. It doesn't compare, and I'm willing to bear it. Number two, consider the cost or consider Christ. Number two, reject self. Reject self. Notice he then goes on in verse 32. And he said plainly, I scratched my head when I like that, and he said, Jesus said plainly. He said it clearly. It's kind of like, you know, he didn't want to have a failure to communicate. He wanted them to clearly understand exactly what he's about to say and what he has said. He clearly says it. And this word helps us understand that not only clearly spoke, he was to the point. He didn't, you know, give him this, this, this cell where he kind of went around. You know, you've been, been in the, you know, been somebody trying to say something, kind of going around the way to get you to sign the dotted line. He went straight for the jugular. He was clear and he was continuous, meaning that he continued to speak this over and over and over again because he wanted them to catch, understand, and to know fully where he was headed. And so he said plainly, he said it plainly. They understood it. They understood it so much that notice Simon Peter's reaction. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This here is a sudden movement. And when Simon Peter takes upon himself this this self-professed authority and he sort of grabs Jesus, we're not sure how, but he pulls him around to where now he and Jesus are face to face. Just him and Jesus. Pulls him aside. And he be. Simon Peter begins to tell the Son of God, he doesn't like what Jesus has just said. Begins to rebuke him. No way, Jose. It's not happening. I'm not going to let you do it. 
Now, I, I find it interesting here, and I don't know if you read into text sometimes, but Jesus doesn't interrupt him. You notice that? He didn't go, shh, Peter, wait, stop it. You're way off base here, man. What you're spewing out is just ridiculous. He lets Simon Peter finish the rebuke. Have you ever done that? Sure you have. You didn't like the cross that you're bearing, and you, well, you start complaining, don't you? And, and, and he just lets us go on and mouth and mouth and complain and complain. And the whole time we're complaining. And he just lets us. He doesn't, he doesn't, but then when we all of a sudden we stop complaining, the Holy Spirit comes and said, eh, let me have a conversation with you now. And so he rebukes Jesus. But notice in verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus turns I mean, he and Simon Peter are face to face, and Simon Peter is telling Jesus, you can't do that. And all of a sudden, Jesus turns and classes in session. Peter's done. They've all heard it, and he turns and classes in session. The bell is rung. The teacher's in the room. The master is at the desk. And Jesus now turns to everyone. And notice it says, but turning and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter. How would you like to be the center of attention after something really, really not smart? I was going to use another word, but we have children here today. Do you like to be the center of attention when you've done something really foolish? And now Jesus is pointing out Simon Peter. You don't want to do what he just did, guys. Uh-uh. And he turns to Simon Peter, or he turns to the crowd, and he talks about Simon Peter. He's saying, get behind me, Satan. It's a pretty strong rebuke. It's a pretty strong admonishment, isn't it? Get behind me. Why is he telling Peter, who's being a vessel or a tool or an instrument that Satan is using to prevent him from going on this death march down across. Why is Satan trying to prevent him from doing that? Because Satan tried to do that in Matthew 4 where he said, hey, you bow before me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. I'll, I'll make you a king, but bow before me. Just said it's not happening. And, and Satan has not given up that temptation in trying to shortchange Jesus from dying on the cross and giving him what the ultimate reward will be because he died on the cross is a kingdom. Because when he dies, he lives and he reigns as king. And he's saying to, to, to really Simon Peter, you're being an instrument, you're being a vessel, a tool that the enemy is using to keep me from the progress that I should make on this journey toward the cross. So get behind me. Don't be a stumbling block to me. Don't be a barrier in my path. Stop it. And there are times when we need to just clear the air and clear the road and, and get rid of all the obstructions that the enemy is using to tempt us from going on in following Jesus and making that death march toward the cross. And he calls him Satan. He's not Satan, but he's a tool and a vessel that Satan has used. Get thee behind me, Satan. For you are not setting, notice he says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. You're not thinking very clearly. I think I said this last week. I saw a marquee the other, the other day on the road. Uh, don't believe everything you think. You know, sometimes what we think is just flat out wrong. And just because we have this thought doesn't mean it's reality. 
So he's saying you're setting your mind on things that are temporal, things that are tangible rather than on the things that are spiritual. Why is he setting his mind on the things of this world? Why is he setting his mind on the things of the earth? Why is he setting his mind on himself? It's because of self. Self often rises to the throne of our hearts and the center of our being and demands attention. And he's saying, hey, deny self. Reject yourself. I don't know if you know it or not, but self often rises to the occasion and the flesh has a tendency to speak into our journey and saying that cost is too high. That price is too much. That sacrifice is too great. That direction takes too long. What you are bearing, the weight of this burden, take it off. It is more than you can handle. And he comes and he tests us and he tempts us and he tries us and he speaks and he puts barriers and obstacles in the way. Self does all of these things. Satan feeds self and self gets in our way so often and so many times that it becomes a stumbling block to that which we know to be the will of God for our lives. So we must consider Christ, reject self, oh, offer everything. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them. I think it's interesting in the first part of verse 34, and calling the crowd to him. What's he doing? He's, he's, he's now calling the crowd. You know, it was, it was him and the disciples, and then Peter turned and had a one-on-one, and Peter rebuked Jesus, and then Jesus then turns and classes in the section, and he rebukes Peter in front of the disciples. And then he calls the crowd to come a little bit closer. You know, there's sometimes... Some things that can only be heard by him when we draw closer. One of the main reasons probably why you're not hearing too well, you're not very close. For oftentimes in our distance of Jesus, we can't hear him. Drawing them closer. Notice, the crowd to him with his disciples, and he said to them. Now, this is not just a word to the 12 disciples, and not just a word to Simon Peter, but it is a word to everyone who is present. And the reason why I think Jesus is doing this is because Jesus wants everyone who is here to hear what he is saying. You see, this standard that he's about to set for discipleship, for those of us who have a desire to follow him, isn't just for the 12 disciples. It's not just for Simon Peter. It's not just for the elect or maybe the elite or maybe the ones in the inner circle. It is for everyone and anyone who has a desire to follow Christ. I think sometimes if we're not careful as Christians, and sometimes even those who look outside, we think that, that there are certain standards for certain people and there are different standards for others. In other words, you know, Hey, the standard for you is up here, buddy, but the standard for me is down here. But Jesus says, no, the standard is the same for everyone who wants to follow me. It's not just a standard for the pastor or for the deacons, but it's a standard for any Christ follower, for every disciple. And then he says this classic statement that I hope we come back to later on. I'm going to quickly run through this because I, I really want to dissect this at some point later on. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If, 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 if. Did you catch that? 
If you have a desire, that word would means desire. If there is a desire in you, you must deny yourself. You must deny yourself thought about this when I was in my office a few minutes ago about denying self. Sometimes I have a hard time with that, don't you? Come on, don't you? One more time, don't you? Everybody said yes. Patty was coming up, my wife was coming to life group this morning and she promised her life group donuts. Uh, will you close your ears right now, Doctor? Okay, just don't pay attention to what I'm saying. And if my son in Vancouver is listening, he shouldn't listen to either. We had actually we had a great breakfast this morning. We made a green breakfast in our uh, in our mixer today. I mean, good stuff. And and everything was going really good. You know, I was drinking this really great drink that's supposed to be filled with all these wonderful things for your body, but it wasn't eggs and bacon. But anyway, but it was good. And so we made our way to. Krispy Kreme to get two dozen donuts for my wife's life group class today. She promised them donuts. And I don't know if you know her, but when you go in there, what do they give you when you go in there? A free donut. Have you been in there and smelt that smell? It's the smell of death. It is. It's sugar, man. And oh, it smells. And what does that do to me and to you? It appeals to what? The flesh. Our carnal natures, our depravity, it's not good for us, but it's so good. And I held it, and for about a millisecond, and I bit into it. And I finished it within a second. And my sweet wife is holding hers there because she's not eating hers. And so we went then, and, you know, she got the donuts, and we went over to pay, and she lays hers on the counter... But it did have a, you know, a, a piece of paper there. And I said, honey, you lay that on the counter. That's, that's precious commodity here. It's, it's gold, man. You laid it on the counter. You know how nasty that counter is? She said, yeah, but it's got a, it's got a piece of paper there. And I said, well, can I have it? <laughs> and I ate her donut. I had a great breakfast until then. The flesh... The self, our depravity, sees things that we know will appeal to us, but they are detrimental to our spiritual life. They will kill you. But we yearn for that, don't we? It smells and it looks and it's appealing, kind of like the fruit that Eve was examining, which she'd been tempted by. Satan, self. And he says, deny self. And that's why it's so hard. Deny self and die. Take up your cross. The cross was an offensive instrument of pain and suffering implemented by the Roman Empire for criminals and for the low class. When they heard the word cross, it wasn't some little trinket that we put on our necks around, you know, some little fancy jewelry. They knew what it meant to die. And then the devotion is to follow him. 
to the cross. It's everything or it's nothing. It's everything or it's nothing. You can't follow him and give him 10%. You can't follow him and give him 50%. You can't follow him and give him 99.9%. It's 100% or nothing at all. And when you decide to follow Jesus, it is 100%. The reality is that once we come down an aisle and we, 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 we're moved by the Spirit and we, we, we know that He's the answer and we trust Him and we repent of our sin and turn, then we walk out the door and we're, we're filled and we live in a life that's consumed by the world and the, all the advertisements and all of the appeals and all the smells and all the, the things that we see and we have a tendency to say, okay, okay maybe just 98%, Lord. Let me hold on to the 2%. But we must continually, continually, constantly give him 100%. Offer everything. S. Consider Christ, reject self, offer everything, and select wisely. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's what we call a paradox. It's, it's kind of weird. You want to you save your life? You got to lose it. If you save your life, you lose it. And then he says in verse 36, For what does it profit a man, notice the investment, to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? You invest your life in worldly things, things that are natural, temporary, not spiritual and eternal. You have wasted your life on that which is of no value. In your eternal destiny, your soul will be lost. And then he says in verse 37, For what can a man give in return for his soul? There's some choices here that he says. Really, there are only two. Choose Christ and die so you can live. Or choose this world and live in this world. And you will then eventually die and lose your soul. Choose wisely. There are only two choices, and we all stand at the fork of the road in every aspect of our lives. Do we, do we choose death, the, the death march of Jesus, to give our lives completely to him, to know that that death march leads us to a death, to a cross? But in dying, we live because he, remember, he died. And when he died, what did he do? He rose again. In his death, he then lived. We, like Christ, as we follow him, we may follow him to our death. But in dying, taking up our cross and dying, we, like him, we rise. We live. If I choose the other way, the narrow road, where does it lead? We think it leads to life with all of its smells and all of its appetizing things. But eventually that life that we think leads to life leads actually to a loss of our soul. And there's no resurrection. Choose wisely, select wisely, he says. And lastly, stay faithful. Notice in the text, verse 38, the third four in this passage Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in, his, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I've run out of time, but we were made for eternity, weren't we? We were made for eternity. Every human being that has been given life was made for eternity. And where you spend eternity is dependent upon a choice that you make in this life. For one of these days, a trumpet of God will blow and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and will be forever with the Lord. But there is also a day of judgment, a day of reckoning, a day of accountability. And those of us who follow Christ don't need any lecturing on this sinful generation that we live in. And the pressures and the temptations that come for us to be ashamed of Jesus. To be ashamed that we know Jesus and that we stand firm on his gospel. And he says, those who follow me will stay faithful. They'll not be ashamed on the day of accountability and the day of reckoning. Little Joey went with his parents on a holiday weekend, and uh, as they were going to the, uh, to the park to play, he was excited, and a little bitty fella, and uh, this family had, you know, one of those families, Brother Tim, a bunch of children, and they met family there, and so they had a big family picnic, and there were dozens and dozens of family members playing, and kids went off, and they did their thing, and mom and dad was enjoying, you know, the day with the family, and the park was full, and as the end of the day was coming near, somehow little Joey got lost, disconnected from his family, and began to wander around, didn't think about it much, until the sun started to set. He began to get a little bit worried he tried to find his way back to where his family was, but he couldn't find his way back. And the more he wondered, the further away he got, until finally he was no longer in the park. He was in a neighborhood, walking the streets, trying to find his way home. Finally, it got darker even still, and he finally, in exasperation, just sat on a curb and started weeping. A police officer came by and got out of the vehicle and went over and said, Hey, little fella, what's your name? He said, Well, my name's Joey. What's your last name? He was weeping. He couldn't think clearly. He said, what's your address? He continued to weep. He couldn't tell the, the, the police officer's address. So the police officer decided to console him for a little while and sat next to little Joey, and they had kind of a little conversation, and he wasn't getting anything out of little Joey. He was just, just crying. He was lost. He couldn't find his way home. And finally, the sun set to the point where the lights came on in the streets. And that kind of got Joey's attention. He looked up, and as that happened, he could see at a far, far distance the lights that had come on on a steeple in a church. And on top of that steeple was a cross. And his face lit up, and he stood up, and he pointed to the cross, and he said to the police officer, if you can take me to that cross, I can find my way home. The only way you and I will ever find our way home is through the cross. It's not an option. It's not an option for disciples of Christ. It's not a simple act of inviting him into our lives or into our hearts and then living any life we want to live. It's a death march 
where we follow the footprints in the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Or like Him, our lives are on a death march. And we must deny self. We must take up our cross and follow Him. Let's pray.